We're going to conclude Second Peter today. There were originally going to be two more sessions, but uh, just with the way things have happened over recent weeks, with uh, things being shifted and so on, we're going to deal with Second uh, Peter chapter 3 in one go. There's a lot in here, so again, we're just scratching the surface of it, but we're getting to Peter's summary of his letter. He's given us the reason at the beginning as to why he was writing, and he repeats it at the end and gives some more detail to give hope and encouragement to Christians who were struggling in a dark world. His first letter was about the suffering that Christians would know because of their beliefs. That was 1 Peter. In his second letter, Peter goes into a little bit more detail about what that suffering would look like and how close it would come to those that are in churches of God even. And we considered something of that last week. Let's pick up now 2 Peter 3 and read the whole chapter together. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, and because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the salvation, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, <clears throat> as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. If there's a summary for this chapter, which also is a summary for the whole of his letter, 
It might be this, remind yourself all the time of what Christ has promised. And believing his unshakable promise, commit yourself to living more like him for his glory every day. Notice Peter's heart, his shepherd heart comes out again four times in the chapter. He refers to those to whom he is writing as beloved. They're people who are gathered together in churches of God, uh, scattered across the Roman world at that time. And he's written to them in his first letter to say to them, you're suffering because of your beliefs in a dark world. And here's a second letter to encourage them again. And the reason he's written his second letter is what he says here. He says, I want to remind you to remember. And he said that in chapter 1. You go back into chapter 1. He said that. He says, I'm about to leave. He knew his life was coming to an end. He might even have been struggling with the oppression that might have been happening in Rome. And Nero might have been coming in on him to take his life. He might have known it was imminent. And he said back in chapter 1 that he would spend whatever days he had left to remind others of Christ and what he had done. Of course, we know Peter was one who would preach of Christ to the unbeliever, but he was a man who preached of Christ and his promises to believers too, and we have it here. He says, I want you to remember chapter 1 and here in chapter 3. It's a reminder to remember, he says. Now, we need reminders to remember. It doesn't really follow the logic, does it, that we need a reminder to remember. But we do, because we can very easily be taken off by things and, and be caused to forget or forget to do what we should do in remembering. What are we to remember? It's the promises, the promises of God. We'll come to that in a moment. Now, we've just enjoyed here today our weekly remembrance, and it's called that because it's our remembering. It's doing what the Lord Jesus commanded of his disciples, to be gathered together, having been baptized, to be added together, to serve together in churches of God according to what we see in the New Testament. And one of their prime functions as a worshipping people was to be gathered together to enjoy the remembrance. It's a remembering. The Lord said, do this to remember me. Paul was the one who said in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it's proclaiming something that has happened in the hope, the assurance of the unshakable promise that he's returning. That means he's alive. So that's what our remembering this morning has done for us. The, remem the remembering of who God is. The remembering of who Christ is for us and for God. His sacrifice the truth that he lives again and that he is coming again. It's all there in the service of a church of God when they gather for the remembrance. It's a remembering. But I'm wondering in our personal lives that Peter's, Peter's probably getting that here. He says, I, I want to give you this as a reminder to remember. You're having a hard time of it. You're living in a dark world. He's already been through, as we, we looked at last week in 2 Peter 2, there are people even in a church of God who are not believers, who are in there and they're doing subversive things in a secretive way that's destabilizing uh, the faith of some who would be weaker in the faith. He says, this is happening. It's come this close to you, right into your churches. Um, he's saying, with that coming so close to you, you need to remember don't forget. 
the promises of God. Us personally, do we set reminders to remember the promises of God? You know, I would encourage it as a fine exercise. With um, pen and paper, you can do it. And with modern technology, you can set all sorts of little bings and triggers to remind yourself to remember the promises of God. Do it. And because we can go through such a long period of time in a day, it would seem without even giving God the second thought. Just relegated. Something of a little reminder can be there to help us to remember. Peter's done it in letter form here. And he says, I've done this to remind you to remember. Maybe we can do that ourselves and set it up ourselves if we need that because we need help. I have a shocking memory, as you know. So I need to be reminded often to remember. And I'm thankful for other people who often remind me to remember as well. And that's another aspect of this. Peter was here being used by the Lord to bring a reminder to remember. And he was going to do this for as long as he had his life. He said that in chapter 1. Why did he do this? He said, he says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder. He knew that the mind of the believer would be stirred up as an awakening. He's acknowledging here, is he not, that the mind can close in on itself and in a sense go to, go to sleep with regards to God's things because we get so caught up with the things of life and ourselves. He says, this is so that your mind may be awakened. And you know the scriptures that teach that the mind is, is that which then um, will result in action. And here he's thinking of the mind controlling the heart and the life activity that will be for the glory of God. You'd be transformed by the renewing of your mind if we use Paul's scripture in uh, Romans 12. And that comes after he said, present your bodies a living sacrifice. He says you do that by not being conformed to the world, but by, by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So these things that Peter is getting at here, he says the things for the mind, get these things into your mind. What things? We'll get there in a minute. And he uses the word sincere. And that word sincere uh, actually means something that when it's viewed in the sunshine is seen to be clear and pure. Paul uses it. It's only used a couple of times in the New Testament where he speaks of when the Lord returns, he says, you'll be found pure and blameless in the day of Christ. So it's, it's about your mind being purified with the things that we remember about God and his promises. And that means in a dark world, where we can easily go to sleep to God's things. A reminder can come in and can awaken us again to the glory of who God is and the light of the one who is the light of the world. Remember the predictions, he says, of the holy prophets and the commandment, notice it's singular, the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles. His reference here in terms of the holy prophets was not to the New Testament prophets that were around for the period of the apostles. We have references to those in the Acts. Uh, they were men who would have been given an understanding of something that was yet to happen by the Lord that would be confirmed within the lifetime of those people so they would see it. 
to confirm the things that the apostles were teaching before the New Testament was completed in all its fullness for us today to look back on and go, wow, that's, that's amazing. So the prophets were given in New Testament days as well for the period of uh, the apostles. But here, Peter is taking them back to something he's already touched on, um, back in chapter 1 again. The Old Testament prophets. He said the fulfillment of their prophecies is like a lamp shining in a dark place, he said. You're in a dark place. And remember, the people to whom he was writing may have had a few copies between them of portions of the Old Testament. That's what they had as their Bible. And he says, you go back into that and you see the brightness of the glory of who God is and all of his promises that he's promised these things all down the ages. And he's honoured every single one of them. And there are still yet things to be fulfilled. So therefore you can have hope that God who is faithful will come through for you. And it's a it's a means of light, a lamp shining in a dark place. What a description for the word of God, particularly the Old Testament and the prophets. How much more for us today with the completeness of the revelation of the one who is the light of the world spoken about in the Gospels and then the outworking of his teaching and his impact, his salvation that he came to bring, that light might shine into people's lives. Uh, the transformation in people as then they would go on in their service for him as we have that in the letters, the epistles and then into Revelation we have something that's yet future things to be fulfilled that God has promised that Christ has promised it's a lamp shining in a dark place which is why I will bang on and I will always bang on that set yourselves a reminder to remember the things that God has said in his word be in his word because if you're not, you're drifting. You're allowing the darkness to close in. That um, vibrancy of a relationship with God that's founded on the things that he has promised is waning. We see it often. People moving into other things or neglecting the word of God. It has such an impact on their lives for God. He says, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles. I love that little phrase, your apostles. Christ had selected carefully, spent a whole night in prayer before it was confirmed for the 12 men, one of them who would betray him. That's amazing. But we don't have time to dwell on that. But the 11 and the one who would replace him, as we have in Acts chapter 1. Twelve men as apostles originally. And then you have a couple more. Uh, Paul in particular. Uh, one born out of due time, as he says, to be an apostle. Commissioned by God. Commissioned by the Lord Jesus to be the bearers of the good news of who he is. And in Ephesians chapter 4, we're told that the apostles were given for the building up of the body of Christ. They're a gift they're a gift to the people. And Peter recognises it here. He, he would not dare to say this if he didn't know this of the Lord himself. He knew that he, along with the other men, had been given as a gift. What was that gift? It was a grace of God that they might understand the commandment of the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Just a little thing. It's interesting that Peter is the one who uh, uses that phrase, Lord and Saviour, uh, in his letter. I think it's four times it's there we have it 
uh, throughout the letter, if not more. He recognises and he reminds the people to whom he's writing, Jesus Christ is both Lord and Saviour. You can't separate the two. And maybe in teaching, we can be guilty of saying that they are separated. But one who acknowledges that Christ is Lord of all, then acknowledges that he is the Saviour. And one who recognises that he is the Saviour realises that he is Lord of their life. He is Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And he says, along with the prophecies of the holy prophets that have been fulfilled and will yet be fulfilled because not all of them have been, and the, holy, and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour given through the apostles, then you will be solid not drifting in your faith. That's what he gets to towards the end of the chapter. What a wonderful reminder for us that what the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour, came to do for us, to save us, was that he might bring us into a life where we would pursue the things that he has come to say we should do. And it's considered here the commandment. It's one life. It's one complete body of teaching, in a sense, that is to be followed in life. And just thinking about this before, you, you go back to the Old Testament and you have 513 laws given through Moses to the people of Israel. What's it known as? The law. Singular. Because it covered all of their life. And here we have Peter using something of the same language. Maybe you think I'm stretching it, but it, it's no, no accident. It just says commandment here. All of the things that Christ has said that are for our joy and for his glory as we would live for him, it's a singular thing. He has come that he might be Lord and Savior of our lives and we will then acknowledge everything that he has said and we will do it for his glory. And we have it then laid out for us in written form in our Bibles. Praise God for his grace in giving us such free access to this. Scripture, complete, reliable, trustworthy, coherent, authoritative. That's an important word at the end of it. Now we have to maintain, and Peter was encouraging the people then and we're thinking about the application for us today too. And Peter is encouraging them to be in the word of God. That which was written down, the holy prophets, but also that which they've heard through the apostles, which he has had a hand in then writing down as well. He says, take all that together and maintain your confidence in the things that God has said, his word, that he has articulated to us. And that confidence will see you through when all these threats are coming and the darkness is oppressive around us. He says, be in God's word. Despite the age of God's word, as some people would say, it's a, at least a 2,000-year-old relic. It's no longer important. Culture would reject the word of God as just being uh, a religious writings like any other uh, of any other religion on earth. Rejected. Dismissed. Myths. Peter's already dealt with that as well in chapter 1. He says, we're not following cleverly devised myths. It's not a myth. Not only that, we have churches rejecting God's word. And for a very long time, we have people who would claim to be those who would be in the word of God 
coming out with things that are not in the word of God or missing things that are in the word of God. And culture would have that all for us to deal with. It comes at us and it would undermine our confidence in the word of God. So being in the word of God, Peter says, is a means of having a confidence when these things are coming at you. It's nothing new. 2,000 years on, maybe the age argument is a bit stronger than it was back then. But it was the same back then. People who were in the churches even were rejecting the things, leaving things out or twisting things. He mentions that. They were doing it. Culture was saying, that's not important. It's just a convenient collection of writings to, to propound this myth of a man who's been raised from the dead. Doesn't sound any different, does it, to today? What does Peter say? Be in it. What does he say towards the end of that? He says um, that our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So he recognized that Paul had been given a wisdom by God to impart teaching to the churches. And he says some things which are hard to understand. Peter, you're telling us. Goodness me. The writings of Paul are difficult to understand. But does that mean we just step back from it and don't bother? Not at all. Peter is saying here people will take that. And they will twist it. And they'll end up with all sorts of things just to suit their own thinking. He's saying don't shy away from the things that are hard. You apply yourself diligently to these things. To the word of God. That you might be assured of the promises that God has made. That Christ has made. Search these things through. And if you need help in it. Get others to help you with it. That's why. The, one of the functions of a church of God is to gather for teaching, yes, but also for togetherness in, in working through the scriptures. We need to do that. To grapple with these things. And if that's in smaller groups or even together as a whole, it's something where we work through together to understand the things that God has said in his word. You know, the word itself might have difficult things to understand, but... I was thinking that the most difficult thing about God's word is the obligation it places on my life for me to obey. That's difficult. There are some things that are very plain and straightforward and they come every day out of God's word that would challenge the way I think, the way I act and the things I would do. That's difficult. But that's God's word. That's our God. He's working a transformation in us from the moment of our salvation, the sanctification process, that we would be more like Christ, thinking of that last week as well. He's working that in us. And how does that happen? As we're in his word and as the spirit who indwells us would prick our conscience so severely that we see within ourselves in the light of God's word that we do not match the one who is our perfect example, which is Christ, for whom we have been set free, that we might live to be like him. Why is it for our good? Yes, it is for our good. But that's a secondary thing. It's for the glory of God that others may see Christ. Now that's a responsibility, to respond to the authoritative word of God. Peter goes on to speak about these scoffers, people who will mock. Last time we thought about chapter 2, people in the church who were actually just out for uh, satisfying their sinful desires and probably doing it in secret and it was undermining. 
Here there's scoffers. And I think this, this could be people, possibly in the church, but it could be people outside. They have some knowledge because in what he says they're speaking, they know something of the fathers, the ancestors. He says they're going to come, they're just going to mock and say, you say that this man who lived and died for you and you claim has been raised from the dead, he's coming back. Where is the promise of his coming? Now, if it was difficult then, in the middle of AD's first century, let's say 65, somewhere around there, 30 years after the Lord had been speaking about the imminent coming of a glorious kingdom and his imminent return as the, the disciples had received it from, he had made the promise he was coming back. And this was the teaching that was going through the apostles and through the disciples as, as the message was being propagated and people were being changed, they were being saved, they were brought together into churches of God. Big aspect of their teaching was he's coming back, he's coming back. And here people 30 years on, a generation has passed and they're saying, where's the promise of his coming? People do it today. People would claim that God doesn't exist because they don't see the fulfillment of a promise within their time frame. And they'll reject it. That's important. Within their time frame. They're not giving it any regard for what scripture would repeatedly say about what God has done according to his purpose and timing. They just see things from their own perspective other than God's. That's rejection of God. Notice in verse 5 he says they deliberately overlook this fact. Fact. <coughs> it's a fact. It happened. What did? That God is the creator and that God brought judgment on the world system in the past. And he is going to do it again. Here's the encouragement for the believers that he's writing to but also those maybe in the church who are not. Saying judgment is coming. It's unstoppable. God has done it before. He's going to do it again. You deliberately overlook the fact. The people who scoff at this. It reminds me of that scripture. That always comes back to me. From Romans 1.18 these days. That people suppress the truth. In their unrighteousness. For what, has been, uh, what can be known about God. Has been made clear to them. In the things that have been made. That has changed my understanding in recent years. That there's a suppression of the truth in unrighteousness in everybody who lives on this planet. And here it is again in Peter's writings, deliberately overlooking that which is fact. God is creator. And he's done it by means of his word. Notice he says that. And water was part of the process of the shaping of the earth. I could start to bore you with geographical stuff. That's how... Uh, land forms uh, are made but then he speaks of judgment by water as well a promise made by God by his word and the people mock Noah in his day a preacher of righteousness they thought this is crazy that a judgment of a flood was coming and it came Christians have a message of course to share with those who are unsaved to say that Christ is the saviour that God has provided to save us from God's judgment. His wrath against our sin. He's to save us from the coming judgment. And it's described here as fire. And God will do it because God said he would. Notice in verse 7 it's the destruction of the ungodly. 
Be careful with that. It's not annihilation. Some would teach that those who are judged by God um, for rejecting him are annihilated. That's not in Scripture. The weight of Scripture would show us even the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember his um, teaching that day of the rich man Lazarus when they died. Lift up their eyes in Hades, it says, and the man, rich man being in torment had a consciousness of where he was and what was going on. He didn't ask to escape from it. That's a fearful thing because he, he's chosen to be in that place because he's rejected the things of God. But there's a consciousness into eternity of a torment of the fire that is coming. The Lord said, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In Luke 16 is that scripture. In Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. There's a consciousness into eternity. The consequences of the wrath of God that come against sin. The heavens and the earth now are being kept for this. You might want to go back and do the little study yourself that Peter flips between the word world and earth and world. He's speaking of a world system and the physical and then he's back to the world system. The world system is that which is judged. But in God's final judgment, he's going to deal with everything and bring it all to a newness. So here are people who overlook the fact, they scoff and they mock. And sometimes it can be embarrassing to respond to them. Because do you ever have that sense you're saying something and because they don't understand it, it does sound to them like a myth. <laughs> you're already thinking that in your mind as you start the conversation with them. We have to have a confidence in the word of God and God's promises and his reliability. Then he goes on in verses 8 through 13. He says, Christian, don't be like the scoffers. He says, do not overlook this one fact. So he says to the believers, you don't overlook this. What is it? That the Lord works to a different time scale than we do. Let's not get caught up with saying one day is a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is one day. It's just a, a metaphor, a simile or whatever um, to describe that God works to a time scale, his time scale, which is entirely different from what man would expect. But what's vital in this is he says in verse 9, he is patient toward you, not wanting that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Notice Peter says he's patient toward you. Who? People in the church of God to whom he'd written his letter. The churches of God. He's aware that there are people in there that are pseudo-Christians. He says there's time to repent, to come to your senses and realise that the judgment of God that he has spoken is going to happen. The Lord is going to return and after that there's going to be judgment. The Lord's going to return again and bring judgment. And when that happens, it's coming. You'll be taken away in it. Eternal punishment. Repent. It sits alongside the Timothy scripture, doesn't it? That God desires that all men be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. It doesn't say that everybody is going to be saved. It's God's desire. But mankind in their rebellion will go on. Here to people in the church of God. He's saying, repent. I think he's also getting at believers too. Who have let things slip in this matter of remembering the things that are important. The things of God. And forgetting the promises of God. And their services has started to wane. He says, you, you sort that out. Repent. When's the last time you repented before the Lord? Repent. And of course then there are those that are outside the church of God. That we interact with every day. And they're not saved. The Lord is patient. His time frame is working out. So that people will be saved. 
Notice in verse 10, there's a reference there to um, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Just very quickly on this, I've, I've taught on this before. The day of the Lord, linking it with Old Testament scripture, speaks of a time of fearful judgment that's coming on the earth. <clears throat> that happens after the church, the body of Christ, has been raptured, taken away. It says, the Lord says, I will come again and take you to be with me. That where I am, you may be there also. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul teaches that the Lord's going to come to the air and there's going to be the sound of the trumpet and the call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord and we'll be ever with the Lord. There's a rapture of the church. But it says that the Lord will come. The return of the Son of Man that he spoke of himself, Matthew 24, 25. And he will come and he will stand on the earth after that. And that's the commencement, really, of the day of the Lord. A punishment that is coming on the the rejecting rebellious nations and the peoples that comprise the nations on earth. It's frightening. Go back and see what Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Joel, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah and Malachi speak of. A time of judgment, suffering, darkness, God's wrath. The end of our Old Testaments, Malachi 4 and 5, the great and awesome day of the Lord. It's not a positive thing. It's a punitive thing. Fearful. Judgment coming. The day of Christ that Paul refers to in his writings is a day of reward. And I take that to be when he comes for his church and they're gathered and there is reward for those who have been faithful in service. Go and search that one out yourself. But also here, we have in verse 12 the day of God mentioned. These are different terms. The day of the Lord sits between the day of Christ and the day of God. The day of God is the eternal day, as it's described, when Believers, those whom God has redeemed for himself, will enjoy the glory of God forever. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, we haven't got time to get into this. What sort of people ought you to be? I've often said it on this one. You're looking for a question mark somewhere. What sort of people ought you to be? And you're expecting a question mark. It doesn't come. It's a statement. Peter says, you need to be people of holiness and godliness. Holiness, set apart to God. Whatever the circumstances around you, you go after God and you be his. Godliness, in doing that, it'll be evident in your life. You're back into chapter one again. Those qualities of Christ bursting through as your appetite for God and for Christ would have that impact on your life. That you'll be shaped and you'll be changed by the word of God to be like God. It's amazing, godliness, to be like God. He then goes on to speak about with waiting and hastening the coming of the day. Sometimes we can get so caught up that life is going on day after day, as the scoffers, Peter says, can do. We can forget the Lord is coming. Maybe we need a reminder to remember that he's coming back, and that every morning. Shape service in a different way. According to his promise, let's get to this. We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, verse 13. You know, all of this punishment that is coming on earth and all of the dissolving of things by fire that God is going to bring on peoples and the physical elements as well it's all so that the day of God might come with a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and there is sin no more can you imagine what that's going to be like for eternity that's what God speaks of that's why Peter says according to his promise we are waiting 
absolutely unshakable hope for the believer. Righteousness only. For that to be the case, judgment must happen. Judgment has occurred already at the cross when the Saviour died. But those who reject that will suffer the judgment of God and then be dealt with into the eternal lake of fire as it's described in Revelation. Conscious punishment for eternity. But for the righteous, made righteous by faith in the one who is righteous, Christ Jesus, there is this eternal day of God. New heavens and a new earth, a physical thing where we live together. It's not all about heaven as we speak. Oh, yes, we are going to heaven. But there's a newness of something that's physical and tangible. It's described as the earth. Place of service. Maybe back to what we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 before the fall. Something glorious that is restored. And then he says, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You know, when we allow the word of God and God to shape our lives, it's going to weed out the things of sin that we would be spotless and without blemish. What does that remind you of? The same words he used of the Lord in his first letter, lamb without spot and blemish. Spotless, without blemish and at peace. You know, if there's ever friction, friction is because there's sin. You take that out of your life. And you'll have relationships with people that will be glorious. At peace. And when the Lord returns, Peter is saying, he's looking for that. In your churches. People who are at peace. What? It's peace with each other in service, yes. But it's also peace that the things that God has promised are going to happen. And you're expecting it. And it comes. What a joy. Don't be carried away by the promises that have no substance, he says. But grow in the grace And the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Where to grow? I think verses um, 17 and 18 tell us something important. Just to say in closing here. That you're either carried away. Away from God. Or you grow in the things of God. There's no standing still. Someone has said the Christian life is like a bicycle. Unless you keep moving you fall off. I don't necessarily like that because it's thinking of one direction here it's clear that if you don't keep in the things of God and in the word of God you're not going to grow in the grace by the grace to be like the grace of God that's seen in Christ and the knowledge and that's one of Peter's favorite words throughout the whole of this letter is knowledge knowledge coming to the mind to shape the life he says grow because if you don't you're going the other way no standing you're drifting someone has described it this way that a boat that's in a river if you're not applying any energy to move it in one direction you're drifting with the current I think that's probably a better one one has also said this recently that I picked up on that the boat we're on should have sails that allow the spirit of God to push the boat rather than us Trying to chug, 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 chug with an engine thinking we're going in one direction. I'm getting a wee bit carried away with metaphors here. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Who? Christ. What a way to end it. To him be the glory. Because he has made the promises that he is coming back. He is the saviour. He is our Lord. He is coming back. Therefore to him be the glory both now. How? Through the lives of transformed (coughs) sinners. Redeemed ones. As they declare who God is for them in Christ 
in their lives every day and to the day of eternity forever Christ will be glorified remind yourself then all the time of what Christ has promised and believing his unshakable promise commit yourself to living more like him for his glory every day let's pray